All of this and more happened at Westwood High School under my presidency from 1983 to 1985. Welcome back, Mr. Spielberg. Oh, don't do the it's my senior year thing. You're too cool for me. I mean, that's why you never take me to your parties. I hear you're having parties to raise money, selling drugs, making porn with that movie camera of yours. You're going to screw up, Michaels, and one day I'm going to get you. But not today. I'm going to turn into a dick. Let me explain why. This podcast is based on true events. The names have been changed to protect the guilty. This is going to be an upbeat and fun chronicle of adventures with unique characters that define my life. I have some help along the way from some wonderful celebrities who donated their voices to this effort to also bring people together during a really awful time in our country and around the globe. Look, I I lived a John Hughes life, and this podcast is to bring the characters I was blessed to know come to life for all of you in this fictionalized account of the real events that took place in the Reagan 80s. Picture an R-rated radio play, and you'll see what we are up to. Look, I'll be up front as there have been some calls that the cast of my story is too white. That's because we had under 10 kids of color in our class. In fact, we were so lily white, when we chose Rocky as the theme for our senior float, we had to paint a white kid head to toe in black makeup. Not black face, black body. Because all the black guys who could have fit the bill for Apollo Creed were playing football that night at the homecoming game. So if anyone from the outrage culture is listening, Lighten up, Francis. I was elected class president in 1983 at the end of my sophomore year. I was a relative unknown, believing it was all a popularity contest. One girl, one of the most respected in our class, convinced me otherwise. So run for class president. I had a life-changing high school experience, and without exaggeration, loved the people in the class of 1985. This class leaves a particular feeling in my heart One that suggests to me that as a group they were quite sensitive and as individuals they were even more sensitive in their feelings for their fellow classmates and for their fellow members of the student body and certainly also for those around them, their teachers. Only several months ago, the president of the class had occasion to reflect with me. Mr. D, I remember only too well four years ago our first meeting with you when you suggested that time will be fleeting, it'll be tomorrow, and we'll be here like this. That was our principal, Carl Hines. He played a big part in my journey from zero to hero. He walked the football field with me only minutes before our ceremony to tell me how proud he was of our class and the personal growth he saw in me. Well, he was half right. It was June, 1985 and it was the last time we would all be together as a single unified class. This is me speaking at graduation, my actual graduation speech. And while I find it cringeworthy, it was sincere. There are a lot of things that can be said at graduation, and almost too many, but I have a few that I'd like to say. When I look back on what I've done through high school, the only thing of major importance and pride to me is being the president of this class for the past two years. The class that you're looking at has achieved the impossible by doing what is always said that can't be done. We beat the odds that were set up against them. I have a strong emotional tie with this class because for one, my closest friends are seated here with me now, but also the class that chose to select me as their leader for the past two years. 
Because of the overwhelming support and kindness that has been shown to me by the class for selecting this president, I'm afraid of losing my identity that I have achieved. This class has the determination and the attitude and even the class itself to have achieved what it has done and what it will do. I'm going to honestly say that I will miss every single person seated here today. What this was was my life, the job that, cons that consumed all of my time, the other job that I very rarely wanted to give up, and one that I almost did. Thanks to the support of this class, and the administration, administrators, and my advisor, we pulled through. We are a success, and I take back that I called our class, well, what I thought people thought that we were losers. We are not, we should not be labeled that way. The following classes can learn a lesson from us. Granted, we started off dangerously slow, too slow, and we dangled on the edge of not being able to pull out. As you can see, we did it. And we did it in a space of time that no other class can boast. I want to thank the class for their support, for keeping me as their president, and I wish them all well. Thank you. I would lose my virginity that summer. I was heading to Penn State that fall. I had the world by the ass, or so I thought. Ronald Reagan was president. Marty McFly hadn't even gone back to the future when I gave that speech. In 1985, Sylvester Stallone refought Vietnam and won, and also preached world peace from the boxing ring, while Ralph Macchio waxed on and off. Cosby had the number one TV show and Michael Jackson was the king of pop. New Coke had not yet debuted. There was only one Ghostbusters movie and Roger Moore was James Bond. MTV showed music videos. Local TV stations signed off after midnight with the American Anthem, which now makes the opening of the original Poltergeist irrelevant to anyone born after 1990. It was a different world. My mother, Bonnie, was out in our high school stadium audience watching me hand diplomas to each of my classmates, my friends. And I had her and my stepfather to thank for all of it. This whole podcast stemmed from the last few years of her life as I knew she was dying of emphysema from her three-pack-a-day cigarette habit. Bonnie started smoking at age 13, and she died at the age of 59 in 2007. The last few years of her life forced me to look at my own. I started to write down my story, the story she gave me. When she married my stepfather, they moved us to another town and another school where I would make the best friends of my life. As I wrote all of this down, I came more and more to grips with my mom's pending death and had a pretty good look at my own mortality that was definitely on the horizon. Just how do you expect this to end? Those were the words of her doctor on the other end of my cell phone in February of 2007. And they were about my mother, Bonnie. That was when I came to accept that she was going to die. And up to that point, I had made more effort to save her life than she did. She had smoked herself to death. As long as I could remember, I rarely saw her without a cigarette. She started smoking at 13, and by the time she was fitted with a portable oxygen tank at age 57, she was still smoking three damn packs a day. After she had died, and I found old lipsticks uh, all in a package, and when I opened them up, there weren't lipsticks inside those cases. She had hidden cigarettes, and she had been on oxygen. And the ultimate slap in the ass is, she was a nurse. She lost her own mother to lung cancer in 1979, blaming our local hospital for dropping the ball and misdiagnosing her mother and causing her mother undue pain and trauma in exploratory surgery. 
She also lost her nine aunts and uncles to lung cancer. Here's Bonnie herself talking about the loss of her own mother. Well, she had been off and on not feeling good. Then they went to Florida to Aunt Sarah's. And down there, she couldn't lay down to go to sleep, and she was having a lot of pain. I said, no, you're going to go to Dr. Berman in Stroudsburg. So she went up there. I don't, I don't remember if I went with her or not. But then she was in the hospital, and the doctor told me she had cancer. Because he told me it was the size of a 50-cent piece, and if you let me go in and operate, I can get it all. And the thing she didn't want was to be opened up, because she always thought once she was opened up and the air hit it, it spread. And he cut her from stem to stern, and once he opened her up, she was loaded with it. So all you could do was sew her back up. I started writing all of this down in the summer of 2005 as a way to put things in order, I guess. I knew she was dying then. I just didn't want to know. I felt there was hope. And while I was talking to doctors and scientists around the world of stem cell research for lung tissue regeneration, I had better results with a double lung transplant idea. Look, Bonnie was larger than life. She lived by the Rolling Stones mantra of, hope I die before I get old. She used to say that all the time. She was a nurse. And while she was aware of the results of smoking, she pitched camp firmly in denial. So when I got her an evaluation at Temple Lung Hospital and she was approved for that transplant, it took her less than 15 minutes after we left that meeting to say, you know, I'm not gonna do this. We were right on the Schuylkill Expressway. We weren't even 15 minutes away from that hospital. She ticked off a number of answers, but it came down to her not wanting to go through the physical trauma of the transplant procedure. She also said she didn't wanna take over 60 pills a day, most of them immunosuppressants. She said, I already know the devil I'm dancing with, and we have no confirmation that this will make me feel any better. The specter of her own mother lying in a hospital bed in a living room after coming home from having her rib cage sawed open and put back together was enough. Besides, she told me in a calm, very logical voice, I'm just going to smoke again. She argued that it made no sense to take lungs away from somebody who never destroyed their own lungs while she destroyed her own. She said that wasn't fair to them and she wasn't going to take away that opportunity from someone else. Oh my God, this is a big one. Oh, this is a cross. Mom, look here. Mommy, oh. look at it. Oh, boy. We can all play that. Mommy, look. Oh, boy. Ice skate. Uh oh. Ice skate. That was old audio tape of my mother with my brother and I at Christmas around 1973. She used to record things like that with her cassette recorder. My mother was a fanatic on preserving things. Despite her hard exterior, she was actually pretty sentimental. Like her love for detail and preserving things, I wanted to put together an accurate record of my mother and her place in my life. My mother's decision to refuse the transplant left one result, she would die. And she was fine with that. I took to a hammock in my front yard and I started writing all of this. As I said, I, I had lived the stuff of 80s teen comedies, a little breakfast club, 16 candles, a lot of risky business and a pinch of weird science and better off dead thrown in for good measure. I was known as Captain Kirk or Captain Chris 
the class president who saved 262 kids from financial oblivion and united a variety pack of nerds, jocks, toilet queens, burners, band fags, stoners, and cunnermen into one of the more memorable graduating classes in Westwood High's history. We'll get to the word cunnerman later. I was once the little faggot in elementary and early middle school, the kid without a dad, the kid who wrote weird stories for English class and put my friends in them and sometimes read them to the class. I was that kid who sucked at gym and reminded how I didn't fit in with those more athletically and aesthetically charmed kids. Listen to my voice from my first feature movie. It was a remake of the old kids movie from 1967, Mad Monster Party, where I played Dr. Frankenstein with my best Boris Karloff impression. I was hardly dripping in testosterone. Of course, I was 13. <laughs> I'm done. Finally, the means to destroy them. Now they must all know. Know that I, Baron von Frankenstein, master of the secret of creation, is now master of the secret. The invitations must be sent to one. Chris was the the writer, the the creative person. Um, he was always writing books. By my sophomore year in high school, I no longer wanted to be at the lunch table with others who felt rejected and talking about movies and dreading gym class or if a shark at the apex of the high school food chain swam too close. I didn't want to bitch anymore for the next three years of high school, and I didn't want it to look like a prison sentence. I had to do something. As you follow along in this podcast, you're going to see the old tropish zero to hero storyline play out. Only this really happened. By 1996, I was newly married and a successful college graduate heading out to become a teacher. But my old life had been rich. I sold a screenplay. I lived in Los Angeles for a while. I physically fought and defeated a group of skinheads. I made silent film comedy movies with my brother running around in a dress when I was in middle and high school. It was just a nerdy, geeky sort of thing in a blue dress. I tried to avoid it as much as I could. And I had my own local comedy TV show when I was a teenager. I got lost in a forgotten town in the middle of a California desert and almost didn't live to tell about it. I lied my way into a job at Universal Studios and met Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates. I became working partners with my childhood filmmaking hero and graduated college cum laude with a four-year bachelor's degree in just two years' time. As Ronald Reagan once said in his farewell address, All in all, not bad. Not bad at all. So come with all of us down the road to Westwood High School and back to the 1980s to a class presidency defined by risky business without the hookers.